And so the idea of race at its simplest level is that these social categories got created based on perceived physical differences between different, you know, what was called racial groups. And recognizing the differences wasn't necessarily the bad part. I think cultural diversity needs to recognize differences. That can be a good thing when it's done well. Um, the concept of race, though, when, it's, when it created these categorical differences, it also attached human value to them. And that's where, that's where it became a profane and profoundly evil enterprise. So on today's episode with Daniel Hill, author of White Awake, an honest look at what it means to be white, among other things, we're going to discuss the difference between the social construct of race, which is created by human beings, as you heard Daniel just say, and ethnicity, which was created by God. And I think this conversation is so important because, especially uh, as we notice white people like me uh, feeling sometimes shame about being white, but also uh, sometimes being naive to the ways in which white culture, in America anyway, has been normalized. Uh, and so that leads to all kinds of racism even when it's not intended. So uh, I think you're going to love this conversation. And I noticed some of my questions because of the topic is so sensitive. I felt dumb after asking them <laughs> and you're going to notice that. So enjoy the conversation with Daniel Hill. Uh, I loved it. And then go out and get his book white awake. Well, Hey friends, welcome to this good word. Uh, I am here with Daniel Hill uh, who I've known of for really many years, uh, and he's written a couple of books. The one we're going to talk about today is his most recent book, which is called White Awake, an honest look at what it means to be white. Uh, and I can't wait to get into it. So hello, Daniel. How are you today? Hey, Steve. Good. Thank you. It's an honor to be with you here. Well, I've been looking forward to this. I, I, I really have. And I've, I've, as I've sort of worked my way through some questions, uh, I, I just think right now it's so, this is such an important conversation for so many reasons. So um, let's get right into it. Uh, right. Can you, first of all, tell me sort of like, how did you grow up? Uh, what's your church or spiritual background? And um, why don't we start there? Sure. Uh, so I'm a Chicagoland guy all my life. Um, grew up in church. My father's a pastor, um, non-denominational more than anything else, but he was probably 75% Moody Bible Institute and 25% charismatic. So, okay. <laughs> um, so I got kind of some my spiritual eclecticism from him, I suppose. Um, so I grew up around that, small churches. He was a Greek and Hebrew scholar. So the kind of folks who came to his church were those who considered themselves strong Bible students, but you know, were really looking for deeper original language insights. So he would often preach right out of original text and just kind of go straight up there with that. So that's kind of the church tradition I grew up in. Wow. And, and then in my 20s, worked at Willow Creek Community Church, so a very kind of different type of ministry model in my 20s. So yeah. those are my two main formative experiences growing up. Uh, and then, Daniel, was it from Willow that you planted River City, or was there some time in between those two yeah, churches? from Willow. I left Willow in um, January of 2003 and planted River City. Okay, so um, tell me a little bit about that transition. So... Uh, and not everyone that's listening is familiar. So Willow Creek is one of the largest churches in America. Uh, it has a bunch of different campuses. Didn't back then, I don't think. Um, but and sort of pioneered a kind of movement that was called the Seeker Movement. And so church became this place that, um, that um, didn't take anything for granted as far as what people knew about the Bible. And so... Um, and so you started working, like, and, and before you talk about River City, Daniel, how long were you at Willow for and in what capacity? I was there seven years total. I worked on staff um, with the Access Ministry, which was their 20-something ministry. Right. We used the term Gen X back then, but it's obviously yes. dated now, but it was very, that was very kind of gage. I listened to millennials talk about how millennials are. I'm like, oh, goodness, I still remember when I told, you know, everybody at Willow how baby boomers were would never understand Gen Xers, yes. you know, so different, right? So there's a little bit of a generational kind of handoff that's just necessary to happen, but we had a dedicated young adult ministry called Access, and so I worked there for five years uh, in that ministry. So that would have been like 98 till the end of O2. Okay, so... Um, Tell me, like, what, because that's a pretty radical shift 
from where you were at Willow to what you planted? What was the genesis of that, that journey or that discovery? Kind of what led you on that path? Um, I still didn't even actually have the language, you know, so it's always easier to look back and understand right. things than it was in the moment, right? So looking back, I can answer a little bit more clearly. You know, I was I was really starting to come to grips with the first time with just how profound of a role culture does play and how you come to the Bible. And even though I learned this in hermeneutics classes in seminary that, you know, we're all, we all bring biases to the text, I, I had very little appreciation for how much a middle class lens shapes the way you view things, how much a white lens views the way you see things, how much a Western lens views the way you see see things. And so I think what I came to see was that um, Willow was an incredible church and an incredible experience for me and that they had really positioned themselves to effectively evangelize white, affluent, middle-class, educated folks in that area. And while I could very much see the need for doing that, I also realized that, you know, if we were going to start being able to if I, I'll just put it on, if I yeah. was going to ever have any ability to enter into some of the growing realities I was starting to see around racial injustice and, you know, um, many of the kind of things that come with that, you know, it's just, and I'd say it still is the case that, you know, the white church generally speaking is in position to be able to participate in most of those conversations. They're just kind of a, they're just kind of an irrelevance in a lot of ways now because of kind of what would become. And so I, I just realized I had to kind of continue my educational experience somewhere outside of a kind of large white, you know, suburban model. Right. And, and so, okay, so let's, let's talk a little bit, a little bit about your experience understanding that there really was and really is a white culture. Mm -hmm. And I, I love the part in your book when you talk about new kids on the block. So please, please, <laughs> please include that part. <laughs> oh, um. I mean, that is epic. That is just epic. Jordan Knight. Yeah, yeah. I think in that part of that's just I'm just talking about the way it's just you know, identity is one of the most central facets of what yeah. we are as human beings, right? We're trying to understand who we are. So that's telling some of my stories of my high school days of trying to find some kind of a reference point where I could try to uh, emulate myself. So yes, the Jordan Knight, the the, the uh, Backstreet Boy, or I mean, of uh, New Kids on the Block, that was who I tried to be during high school. Um, yeah, so yeah, that's I guess its own whole story. But we all, I'm sure, have funny high school stories of who we tried to be as we try to find ourselves, right? Beautiful. Yeah, and so I. I I think I actually think this is probably pretty common around the world. I think culture tends to play a huge part of how you understand yourself growing up, right? right? That's true for most people, and that's not. It's just as true for white folks. I just think that because because kind of what we think of as American culture and probably what we think of as white culture, they're so similar to each other, almost in a way you can't pull apart. Yeah. Those who grew up in a way being shaped by white American culture as white individuals don't realize the profound ways in which we too have been shaped by culture right. and how much um, culture shapes our sense of self, our sense of belonging, our sense of values, our sense of doing things. And so I think there's a very sensitive but important kind of process of realizing how much is kind of white cult, like what we think of as Christianity in America is oftentimes reflective of much more of white culture than it is of biblical teaching. Right. Um, I think once you get outside of it, it's easy to see. But when you're and I put myself in this for a long time, when you're in it, it's you know it's the, the the old adage is it's a fish describe trying to describe the water it lives in. Right. It's 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 just so immersed in it, it can't separate itself out enough to understand what it is. And I think white culture is such a dominant reality in the. world. It's hard to even separate ourselves enough from it to actually realize the profound ways in which it shaped all of us. Yeah, and you, so you write about a study that was done in the UK and the US about the the, the normalization of white culture mm -hmm. and why that came about. Um, and you talk about it in terms of even, it, it was a way of getting people to be okay with slavery. Um, talk a little bit more about that because I think that, like if we don't understand some of the conditioning with that, then it's really hard to even even see how, uh, in terms of Christianity, um, really a lot of what white Christians are living in is white culture, as you say, and and, and not necessarily biblical Christianity. Yeah. Well, the, you know, the way that to try to get to it faster, the way I've been doing it a little lot lately when I'm meeting with churches and organizations or banks or whoever I'm kind of doing it with is we start just by kind of creating a little bit more clarity around the vocabulary. Yeah. Because we use a lot of terms interchangeably that actually confuse rather than clarify. Okay. 
So one of the things, so here's the business world version. I'm, I'm speaking at the Chicago Federal Reserve in a couple of days with 24 banks from Chicago. And so they're even being, they're just, it's been great that even um, secular places are really interacting with this book, which has been a real unexpected surprise. Yeah. Um, but, you know, so like the business world right now, and I think there's a church version of this, but I'll just go out of the business world. The business world, they use the language diversity and inclusion. Yeah. Right? This is like a lot of buzzword. And I, I think functionally that's kind of how most churches think about it too, right? That we discover an all-white church because we don't really typically think about it that straightforwardly. And we start to discover how central kind of white culture is how we do everything. So we start to we try start trying to diversify. We start trying to include other kind of people in the church experience. And so I think that is its own valid category, and I think it should be discussed. And I, I, some of the words I would put in there, I think the word ethnicity belongs in that category. I think the word nationality belongs in that category. I think the word culture, generally speaking, belongs in that category. And I think this is the kind of large canopy of conversation around how do you diversify and create you know, more inclusion in church spaces and business spaces, whatever. I think that it's really important that we think of the construct of race as something entirely different than any of those words that fall under diversity and inclusion. Um, we use the term race oftentimes synonymously with ethnicity or multi-ethnicity or multicultural, but it really shouldn't be. The word race is describing something totally different than what the historic kind of multi-ethnic diverse spaces conversation is going to reflect. So race is a social construct, which is, I mean, it probably took me five years just to understand that phrase, right? Yeah, I thought, yeah, yeah. God, God is the one who created ethnicity, right? Well, that's true. God yeah. created ethnicity, God created nationality, which is, again, why it's important to differentiate it from race. Race is created by human beings. It's a relatively young concept, you know, in terms of how long people have been around. You know, most who study race would say it's, you know, not much older than 400 years. Very much the creation of race is very much tied to colonialism and slavery, as you mentioned. And so the idea of race at its simplest level is that the social categories got created based on perceived physical differences between different, you know, what was called racial groups. And recognizing the differences wasn't necessarily the bad part. I think cultural diversity needs to recognize differences. That can be a good thing when it's done well. Um, the concept of race, though, when it, when it created these categorical differences, it also attached human value to them. Yeah. And that's where that's where it became a profane and profoundly evil enterprise. And that, you know, that's the work of God alone, of course, to say what is human capability or what human value is, right? The historic language for that being the doctrine of the Imago Dei, that all human beings are have dignity, have value because we're creating God's image, right? So so race really created these categories. So it created a category for Native American and said yeah. they're dangerous and merciless and need to be, you know, removed or subjugated or executed. And then I think the one that we continue to also see in just such profound ways is the racial category of black, you know, where it said that, you know, black people, especially when compared to white people, are an inferior race and they're less intelligent, they're more dangerous, they're less capable, more prone to, you know, all kinds of things. And and that was an important narrative to create. Um, Brian Stevenson, who I quote a lot in the book, as you know, the founder yep. of the Equal Justice Initiative, he uses the term the narrative of racial difference to describe this. And so the idea being that we don't just create categories of race, which is risky as it is, but that we assign human value. There's this story, there's this narrative that says whiteness is what's kind of most beautiful, most um, successful, most capable, most intelligence, really kind of pit blackness on the other end of that. That's which was most inferior, most dangerous, least capable. And it's what was really necessary to justify slavery. Right? You have get white people who otherwise were moral or even Christian human beings, you know, who study the same Bible as us, but who found a way to own human beings, right? And it wasn't that wasn't that wasn't just a handful of us, right? That was that was um, for the most part. I, so I'm going to throw in. What, I heard a presentation yesterday. I never heard this before. Somebody was talking about the foundation of the KKK. Mm -hmm. Me out that most people think the KKK was this kind of fringe thing in the South with extremists, but at its height, it had on paper like members, not like guestmen. At its height, it had nine million members. The Whoa. KKK million members in it and that's west coast east coast south and north right and so it, it was just really built off of this ideology that there's this there is a supremacy around whiteness there's an inferiority around blackness and it kind of created you know all kind of havoc in our country and then you know we could talk for it, it also has implications on latino and asian and mixed race but to get to your point that's the heart i think of race is this social system that said not only is there physically you know these perceived physical differences but there's this powerful story being created 
created that there's patterns, there's capabilities, there's capabilities, there's human value and worth that are tied to where somebody falls on that racial hierarchy. And the racial hierarchy put white at the top. You know, we didn't yep. used to call people white. We used to call them Irish and uh, Polish and German and, you know, um, but but that was this kind of weird kind of construct that was created that you had to kind of blend into whiteness to be able to kind of claim your seat at the table in the United States. And if you were black, you were, it, we have in the constitution, it literally said three fifths human, yeah. you know, that been amended, but I mean, it captured the spirit of the time. And so that racial hierarchy is really important to understand. And that's a totally different conversation than the diversity and inclusion. That's a conversation around sin. It's a conversation around evil. It's a conversation around demonic warfare. Yeah. And it, it really deserves kind of its own separate category than anything around diversity and inclusion. Well, let's talk about that for a little bit then, because I think I, I came across a phrase, and maybe I'm ignorant, uh, but just really recently, uh, and the phrase was Christian supremacy, right? Um, and this is the idea of just um, any power structure that co-ops, uh, like patriarchy or white supremacy, that, that, that co-ops the language, the morals, the sacred text, the social identity of Christianity to serve its own terms. Um, and so like, can, can we talk a little bit more about how you see that playing out in terms of racial difference and this construct of race and how it, how, um, power structures co-opted Christianity, um, to further its own, uh, its own gains? Oh yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, I, I mean, if we take it on the racial front of that, like when we're talking about white supremacy, you know, it, that's a hard term for most white Christians to hear, for most white people of any background to hear, because it's often associated with the most extreme forms. Right. right? So it's associated with KKK or combat boots or Nazi signs, Charleston, things like this, which those extreme forms are still symptomatic of the disease. But in the everyday reality, it's just this idea that that which is white is that which is kind of considered to be most superior, right? So, um, you know, it, you know, I give some of these examples in the book, but I think just some of the everyday examples where, um, you know, I, I, I'll still never forget the first time I heard a friend joking about two white friends joking and there was a non-white friend there and they were joking about how weird somebody's name was that they had just met. And this other person said, well, wh why is it weird? And she said, you know, the only reason it's weird is because you've got a set of names that sound white American to right, you. Right. You know? But when you when you hear something outside of that, like you, have, you, you just don't realize the degree to which you've normalized your own kind of lens on these things. Yeah. Right? Or, you know, there's study after study of job applicants, right? And the more white the name sounds, the better the chances are that that person's going to be accepted. And, you know, the less white that name sounds, the more there's going to be kinds of narratives associated with that person. Um, you know, I, I Another example that for me was very powerful was being in seminary and having a professor say, you know, here's just the the very sinister forms. Like he's like, I don't consider our institution to be, you know, overtly racist. Of course, at all, we're trying to combat that. He said, but you just see it in the sinister ways. He said, if you look in our theology catalog, we've got African, you know, Black African studies, we've got Latin American studies, we've got Asian American studies around theology, but then we have just regular theology. <laughs> like, oh, you're not gonna have you're not yeah. going to ever have a category called European theology. You're not going to find Calvin and Luther under European theology. Yeah. Um, you're just going to find them under theology, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and it's just kind of a, it, that doesn't mean that Calvin and Luther didn't have good stuff. It's just, it just, just shows the way that we preference certain kinds of things over others and just normalize that. And I, mean, I think we can give lots of examples of these, but I think it's, it's, it's these, you know, I don't think the problem for most of us is we're walking around saying I'm white and therefore I'm better than other people. Right. I mean, that, that would be a much more straightforward problem to address. It's the, it's the much more sinister ways in which we've all been kind of taught that, whiteness is a ideal that really should be normalized and that everybody should adhere to. And, um, you know, until we start to learn the kind of history of that, it's very hard to extract it or uproot it. Yeah. I remember even, for example, I remember going through an inventory one time and one of the, you know, it was a lot of questions like this, but one of the questions was, and you had to, and I'm sure you've been through a million of these, Daniel, but, but we had to, um, like give a check mark on the yeses or the nos of, and one of the questions was, uh, have you ever had to struggle to find a magazine with someone of your color 
on it? Or, you know, have you ever had to struggle to find? Um, and, and honestly, as I had gone, as I went through that inventory, I realized like, I've never even thought about that. Right. Yeah, right. And that's what you're talking about. Like I, I've, mm-hmm. I've never even had to consider that. Um, you know, that when, when I come into an interview, no one's surprised that I'm white and male. No one, no one has to rearrange the, uh, you know, the questions or like no one makes awkward stares at each other. Um, I was reading Austin Channing's Brown, Austin Channing Brown's new book. I'm I'm still here. And I mean, she has some crazy stories about that because number one, they think when she, you know, writes her name down on a, on a resume. They think she's a man. <laughs> Number two, they think she's a white man yeah, uh, based right. on her education. And then she shows up to an interview and is like, oh, my dear Lord. Um, so, okay. Um, so you, in your book, you talk about sort of the five, like the seven stages of a journey towards yeah. um, trying to sort of discover cultural identity and the importance of that and, and move toward, um, a better understanding. Can you, can you walk through those, um, piece by piece? Yeah, sure. Yeah. So, you know, my, my, my basic kind of thesis on this is that, um, race is not just one of many social indexes that race is a profound spiritual, social, and moral problem that's been around since the beginning of our country and that shapes the full fabric of reality and that, um, you know, for, for those, and especially the darker skin brothers and sisters, you know, that, that they, they really typically have no choice, but to kind of come face to face with that from early on. And that becomes part of their identity development is having to learn how to combat that reality of race being everywhere. Yeah. And to be white, kind of one of the privileges that comes with that is that, you're just never really threatened by that. So you never have to really open your eyes to see it for what it is, which doesn't mean we can't struggle in other arenas or be marginalized in other ways. But you know, when it comes to race, because of the way race is set up, it preferences and privileges whiteness. And so to be white is to never be under the threat of attack of it. And so you're just never there. You're, it has to be a willful choice to want to learn to see it. And so the, my basic thesis is that there's a whole reality that we have to see. And this is especially important for those of us who are Christ followers, because I think it's, it gets to the central work of Jesus saying he's come to bring his kingdom from heaven onto earth. Right. right? And that's in my mind, that's kind of a warfare kind of image, right? Where it's like Jesus is bringing a kingdom of peace, but it's a peacemaking kind of peace, right? Where it's, where it's extracting the kind of evil kinds of um, presences that are here that would, you know, distort humanity based on, you know, its purposes. And so um, I think once, um, once a white person decides they really want to see there's a lot of support out there to help us see. Um, but what I have found is that, um, that it's not the seeing part that's so hard. It's the wanting to see. Right, right. Exactly. Right. So that's really what the stages are about is it's kind of like we tend to go through these multiple stages and they're not always chronological. They're not always linear. Sometimes you stay in one longer than the other. Sometimes you jump back and forth. But yeah, so I, I go through these stages of, um, you know, so denial, I think is, is, is usually where it starts. Yeah. You know, when we start to realize there's this kind of ugly, dangerous racial reality all around us that we never really aware of, it's just almost natural to be in denial of that, right? Because you're almost immediately implicated, right? Like if you've been around this the whole time and you never knew, you know, it makes you feel silly, it makes you right. feel stupid, it makes you feel like somebody hoodwinked you, right? Yep. So for a lot of different reasons, like denial tends to be the, the typical first response, not everybody starts there, but for a lot of people, that's the first response. And so, you know, I, I kind of talk through that a lot. Um, you know, oftentimes there's kind of a shame response that comes once you start to see the kind of brutal history with that kind of goes along with race. Oftentimes there's kind of a, you feel ashamed to be white. So mm-hmm. that's oftentimes the stage. I think there's kind of a disorientation that tends to come with this where, um, it just feels hard to, <laughs> no left from right. Right. I mean, you just, you just, you've kind of gotten used to doing things a certain way. And so once you kind of discover that there's a reality happening, that's been beyond kind of your understanding before, right. I mean, that's just a, that's just a super discombobulating, um, reality. Um, 
you know, there's a, there's often the self-righteous stage that comes with this where, you know, once you start to get woke a little bit, you know, you think you're superior, but yeah, you know, yes. right? like, um, that tends to be kind of a stage with it. Um, yeah. So, so I don't know if you want to talk about it even like specifically, but yeah, that, that's kind of what I try to do in the book is walk through the different stages that I've observed, you know, over, you know, basically 20 years now of working with folks in this who are, you know, white and trying to kind of understand the system of race better. And, um, you know, there tend to be these kind of very typical patterns of how we kind of find our way. Yeah. Well, that, that was really helpful. Even just, even just right there. Um, so, uh, at, at our church here in Minneapolis, we invited, uh, a native American brother. He, um, he came in and he was fascinating because he said, basically I am a missionary to, to Christians. <laughs> That's funny. And, um, yeah. And he goes, I, so, um, and, and he told his story and one of the questions that came up was, um, like, cause he works with a lot of churches and, um, and one of the questions was, how do you know that you're working with a church that really does want to wake up to these, to these realities? Mm -hmm. And he said, well, um, how I know that they're not awake is when they want to, when they promise to do something right away, you know, like, like I, we, we are going to fix this. We're going to make it happen. We're going to get, um, right. Uh, like we're going to move immediately to solution. And do you think, so here's, here's my question, because I think that's a lot of, and then he said, and frankly, that's a lot of churches like yours, Steve, it's white progressive <laughs> churches that I trust the least, uh, cause mm -hmm. they just, cause they just want to do something. And so what would you say, like, if you were in that room, uh, and you were given, uh, a, you know, a little time to talk unpack why that is and then give an alternate like give an alternative direction to take does that does that question make sense yeah i do think it makes sense and yeah it's it's one i resonate with you know so um i kind of hinted at this a little bit within the last answer so my, my strong kind of conviction on this is that the most important transformational work for those of us who are white is to be able to see more clearly yep um, and I think that gets to the core. So there's two versions, I think, of not seeing that are problematic. And without a risk of overgeneralization, there's kind of a left version or a right version, right? So, so those on the religious right, oftentimes, the not seeing is just a literal, like, refusal to acknowledge, right? You know, yeah. and we still see that a lot, you know, where where there's this kind of crying out from Christians of color and then white Christians going, you know, oh, I don't think it's that big of a deal. Mm -hmm. I think we made a Progress. I don't think it's nearly as bad as you say. When people personally talk about racial experiences they've had, white Christians have to respond. I don't know if that, you know, they, they, there's a lot of sense of you have to prove that to me, right? Mm -hmm. So there's just this kind of refusal to see how deep it goes. On the religious right, there's all, there also tends to be a refusal to see complicity historically with mm -hmm. it. Yeah. Right. I mean, like, I mean, literally, slavery could not have happened without white Christians supporting it. Like, literally, right? Yeah. yeah. You can go further, like, literally, slavery could not have happened without white Christians creating theology for it, right? Yeah. I mean, that's just a hard, hard history, right? Um, so that that's like a version of not seeing that's waking up there. What I see on the left a lot, um, I just had this happen this week. I, I was with a circle, and this it, um, it's, it's a very active circle. Um, but there is a tendency to think that because you've gone to the seminars or listened to the right podcasts or listened to the right books, that means you do see yeah. and you now are enlightened and prepared to, to kind of take this on. And then um, it's almost like the beginning of seeing has happened, but then we truncate the process and self-anoint ourselves too quickly of actually being um, aware enough of the issues to actually become caretakers for it. And so um, what I see in this, you know, so I don't know what he was saying to you all, um, um, and I won't even try to comment on that. When I think of like my versions of that, something that makes me nervous is when I see a bunch of white folks who have self-annoyed themselves as woke on the stuff and they're trying to fix stuff on behalf of other people. Yeah. 
Um, to me, that's just a different version of not, of not seeing, right? Yeah, yeah. And it's and it's, in some ways it's a scarier version because it's the it's the person who's blind who doesn't know they're blind that's actually the more dangerous one. The person who's just blind, right? Because at least yeah. if the person's just blind, once they can see, they can like get hooked up with the right people to continue them on and the sight process. But if you're blind but think you see clearly, <laughs> that's when I think it can become dangerous. And so um, I, I don't even say this to folks or things. I, I think it's premature based on where they're at. But I think when you get somebody who's deeper in, I think the 201-301-401 work for white folks who really want to be active, because I do think we should be active. I think the early stages, the activity should be around learning. And the later stages, I think we should be active in you know um, confronting white supremacy. But I think we still need to do it um, at a minimum in partnership with people of color. And really, it's even ideal to do it under the direction of people of color who are racially conscious, wise people that are giving us guidance. Like That's you know, uh, so I'm not trying to promote myself as like some kind of great model here, but this is just a real life example from this week. So I'm speaking at the Federal Reserve, right, on Thursday. So two nights ago, I sat down with like the folks who really walked with me. And so there was three African-Americans and one Korean-American person. And um, I said, all right, I've got this opportunity. They have already encouraged me that I should do this. So I said, like, here's maybe what I'm thinking I should say. And like right off the bat, like, close to half of it, they're like, Ooh, I don't know about that. I'm not sure about that. Yeah. Like, I think that actually perpetuate. Right. And like, that was my best version. Like that would like outside of them, that's the talk I would have given. Cause it's what makes sense to me. And so that reminds me, I'm like, man, I'm at least still have blind mm-hmm, <laughs> I've been mm-hmm. doing this for here. and I'm at still because it's, it's not, it's like, I can see that it's a problem, but I just don't have the wisdom. Right. I didn't grow up being threatened by this. I didn't grow up um, understanding how to survive marginalization. I didn't have to grow up with a theology of understanding God, when you're under assault all the time. Right. And, and so I'm just, I'm, I'm handicapped in so many ways on this stuff, even though I want to be active. And so to me, that would be, I'm still, I'm trying to be active, but I'm not centering activity. I'm still centering blindness to sight and I'm surrounding myself with folks who have committed themselves to me, which I don't take that for granted. I realize that's a very significant privilege, a very significant gift to have people like that who are willing to walk with me as I walk in these spaces. But I still see that, like, in a, in a lot of ways, it's not any different than what I was doing 10 or 12 years ago, right? Which is, I don't really understand this. I can't cease, right? So I need people to help me see, right? So I'm in different spaces and how I'm actively moving in that. But the process is still the same of embracing blindness to sight and asking. You know, I see in a lot of ways, like, I think the, the, the two clear biblical parallels to this would be Saul, when he gets converted mm-hmm. in Acts 9, and then God says, you know, you're not going to be able to see straight until Ananias takes those, yeah. right, yeah. those skills. And I think Ananias' response is like so apropos for the day we're in. Ananias says, Lord Jesus, <laughs> have you not heard about this man, Saul? He kills people. Like, why would you ask me to do something, right? And that's really like I'm conscious that when I'm asking those three African-Americans and the Asian-American person yeah. that have committed themselves to me, I, I'm the Saul who's like asking an Ananias to like help the person who's been part of killing them, you know? Yeah. and that's no small feat, but it's also the only shot I have, right, is to like continue to surround myself with folks who can help me move from blindness to sight and to prove myself a good student, you know, that the, the proof of me being a good student is, all right, I'm woke now, I don't need you anymore. No, the proof is I only become more aware of how much blindness there is and how deeply reliant on community that I am. Man, I, I, I really, I, I think that is, I think that is really profound. And, and thanks for sharing that recent example, because I think, um, it gives me hope that there's, there, there's just continual learning to do, you know, like, like that we don't ever sort of, that we don't ever get there, but that, that this principle that you have of, of putting yourself under the leadership of people of color, of making, of asking people of color to walk alongside with you, even though they they do so at great risk to themselves, um, it is. Um, I mean, those are some principles that as we as we try to walk toward being more and more awake, um, I think um, that can keep us grounded, right? Yeah. Um, okay, so I was having a conversation with a colleague. He's an African-American pastor here in town, part of my denomination. And I displayed some ignorance in just such a, such a humbling way. Um, but our church is moving from, our church is four years old, moving from an area of town that is predominantly white into uh, a different city, just, just a little, just one 
to the north, uh, one city to the north that's more diverse. And so I was talking to him and I said, okay, help me. Like, how, how are we going to make this move? And, um, like, and he knows my church is mostly white and, and he goes, well, what do you want? You know? And then I said, well, I, you know, and I'm, I'm fumbling around cause I don't want to look like an idiot, even though I did. So I said, I, well, I, I, I think we, most of us really would like to be a church that's, and then I said, that's multicultural or intercultural. And then he stopped me and he goes, well, which one? Multicultural or intercultural? <laughs> I'm like, I don't even know the difference. Please, please tell me. And, you know, so then he's, multicultural is you still have one dominant culture. You know, you can still have your white culture, but you just look, um, you know, you look, um, you, you have more people of color in it. But intercultural is when um, the cultures that are represented really give shape to your leadership, your liturgy, your everything. And um, so like I, that, that meeting was so helpful. And it also really, Daniel, made me think like we, I, we just don't, like how, <laughs> how are we gonna move into this place? There's a lot, and we're, we have this peacemaking cohort. And I, and I don't think we're starting at ground zero but what would you say to us as far as, and maybe you've already said it, but say it again, uh, as we make a move, you know, toward really, and we all care about this, but how will we embody um, um, what we believe in ways that, that really make sense in this new community? Yeah, well, one of the things that I think you stumbled into there, which I do think is problematic, is is again the the language around this stuff gets very tricky. Right, right. And um, and it's not like it's agreed. Like what he said to you, do you want to be multicultural or intercultural? I'm not sure if you talk to somebody else if they'd agree with his definition right. of what multicultural <laughs> okay. Right. So I don't I don't dispute the fact that he's like he's recognizing a clear separation in two different paths, um, and I resonate with that. Um, you know, so I'm just again acknowledging like this becomes some of the tricky work. Right, right. is even finding language that works. And there's there's at some point, you know, like one of the things we stress in our community is the need for common vocabulary and common theology so that, you know, people could have meaning attached to these words, whatever it meant coming in. But when there were in our space, we're not saying thus say the Lord forever in every space, but in this space, we're saying, here's what we mean when we're using these different terminologies. And so, so yeah, this is not a universal way to, the only way to do it. But for us, the distinction we make is diversity kind of language in one track and then race kind of language in a different track. Right. And so that would be kind of the language then the vocabulary we develop. And so, you know, at risk of, again, bottom lining it too much, but diversity kinds of languages would be around the idea of recognizing that people come in from different cultures and different ethnicities, and there's different stories and journeys with that, different gifts to the body that come from that, different kind of emphases within their culture. And I mean, you could spend an inordinate amount of time just doing multicultural diversity kinds of things, right? I mean, that's actually still a very taxing field, right? Yeah, you know, and, yeah. um, and that's what we did a lot of in our early years. I mean, still do. I mean, I think, I don't think, I don't think, I don't think this is one or the other. That's why I'm emphasizing, I think it's different tracks. And then for us, really emphasizing the track of race. And, you know, from the book, I use Brian Stevenson's term, the narrative of racial difference. And so that's a term we expect, like, just in the same way we want gospel and salvation and discipleship to be terms every person knows. Like the, the term, the narrative of racial difference is something we want every single person mm -hmm. to know. Yeah. We want every ethnic group to wrestle with, right? So we do coxing even around like for Asian Americans, what do you hear? Like, what does that bring up when you think about the historic usage of the narrative of racial difference? And for black folks, what do you hear? And for Latino folks and white folks and mixed race folks. Um, and so, um, I think they just require very different energies. Diversity, I think, really is around creating that spot. And I, in my, this is just my perspective. You know, I would have loved to have had the conversation with this black pastor friend of years when he's talking about multicultural and intercultural. In my mind, from my perspective, that would still all go under diversity, and it would be a spectrum under diversity. So, like multicultural would start, which is saying we're functionally still a white church, but we want to be as hospitable as possible to people about their backgrounds. And I think that's a good step to make, right? Yeah. For a white church to only be hospitable to white people, to like really wrestle with how to become hospitable to other people. And then on the far other end of that continuum of diversity is saying, we don't just want people attending in the audience or even just have 
one person do announcements sometimes or one person be a drummer or something like we actually want elders and staff people and stuff like that right that's like the far other end of that one so to me that's still in the way we use the language that would still be in the language of diversity it would just be the other end of the spectrum and then when we're talking about the system of race we're talking about the sin of the system of white supremacy which is not to be confused with white people right the sin of the system of white supremacy and we we take seriously kind of the lament around the historical reality of white supremacy and we take seriously the kind of ongoing sense of sinfulness with the way that sin, that white supremacy shapes basically every structure in society still. And we try to like carve out conversations for saying like, how has white supremacy affected church? How is white supremacy affecting the educational school system? How is white supremacy affecting the incarceration system? How is incarcerate, you know, white supremacy affecting, you know, police brutality and like wanting people to like be able to make connections between the presence of good versus evil, truth and lies and scripture and being able to kind of tie that to how race is playing out in society. And not only do I think they're two different fields, because one is more of a creating space and, you know, working together, the other one's more of a confrontation of sin. Um, um, I think, you know, not, not only is there that piece, but I think it gets to the reality. One of the reasons that it's helpful for us that I find it helpful to make that distinction is you can get a church that focuses on diversity and actually never talks about race. Right. Um, I actually am not sure that's super helpful for the cause. Yeah. And I think the reverse can be true, too. I think it's OK for there to be a white church who the way they express themselves is by taking on the system of race and saying, we're going to learn how to understand the danger of white supremacy and learn how to get better at talking about that and learn how to get better about being agents in society. Like, I don't think the only way to manifest yeah. upper white supremacy is by building a diverse church. In fact, you know, sometimes that's not even necessary and to you know there's a lot of ways to confront white supremacy without including like having to become a diverse church like i don't think that's the only fruit of doing so and so um you know if a church if there was a mostly white church and they had to pick which one of those tracks they were going to pursue i would frankly much rather than pursue mm -hmm. the race because i think that's getting much more to the gospel idea of repentance of sin mm -hmm. and truth and um most folks honestly aren't even up for that but if yeah. they would be that's a far more i think productive exercise than trying to incrementally increase the diversity percentage of the congregation again i don't think there's anything wrong with that i just think it's easy to mistake that you know for the deeper work which is i think really confronting this profoundly evil and this profoundly clever system of race that continues to operate you know in an almost unabated way in society Daniel, I think that what we just talked about is so helpful to me, actually, those clarifying those two different things. There's the diversity conversation, multiculturalism, uh, interculturalism. That's all one thing. And then the second thing is confronting race. And, you know, it makes me it does make me wonder out loud um, some of the work of maybe young white pastors like man we're going to be multicultural from 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 the get-go that that yes that that could be an important thing i also it, it it does make me wonder sometimes based on what you just said if some of that is is shame um playing the first card too do you know what i mean like and how could it be bad to to want to be multicultural maybe it is never bad but on the other hand um could it be a manifestation of, of, of shame more than, um, this, this good leading? I mean, have you ever seen that? Yeah. Yes. Um, I think it like, like it's probably like a lot of things where there's a probably, a number of, you know, reasons that are, it's where it's well-intentioned, but the wrong idea, yeah, right? So yeah, I, yeah. Shame would be one of them. Sometimes I think it is just as simple as, misdiagnosing the problem right it's certainly when my journey started like if the if, if you see the problem of society is that we don't have diverse spaces then creating diverse spaces seems to be addressing the major problem in society right and so um but if the problem is that there's this structure of race that's built on truth and love that's built on lies and only the gospel can really speak the truth to that then then it makes it it, it, it re-diagnoses the problem at a much deeper level and then it kind of puts 
so diversity becomes one of many tools. Like, yeah. so what's the best way to address lies? Is diversity the best? And maybe, maybe not, right? Like, like what's the best way to address this lie and to prepare people for that and to help people understand the truth, right? And so it's it's diagnosing it at a different level and then um, taking people into, I think, a much deeper treatment around it where, and this is so basic, it really is around truth and lies. It's the truth of the gospel in the Imago Dei. It's the lie around race that says there's a human hierarchy of value. Mm-hmm. Um, but for again for most white folks we've been so conditioned by that lie that when the lie gets exposed we don't always respond super well to that right like it actually confronts us and reveals things in us that really are surprising but often to us and so it's it's again it's far more difficult to get white folks to contend with white supremacy than it is to get white folks to agree that our spaces should be a little more diverse <laughs> like yeah. get them to agree that our space should be more diverse is far less costly than trying to get white folks to contend with the presence of white supremacy in society that is so that just i resonate with that is so true <laughs> oh my dear lord um and there's so much defensiveness and um and uh, you called it clever. I mean, it's white supremacy is a very clever lie. It's a very clever lie. Well, and that's what Jesus calls the devil, right? He says he's the father of lies. His native tongue is that of lies, John eight forty four. So I think that gets to the demonic part behind this is I think there's literal supernatural interest in maintaining the system of race because it's built on a lie around human value. So we are not, we really are not fighting against flesh and blood on this one. We really are fighting against principalities and powers of darkness. So we really do need the, the full armor of God to yeah. do this right i mean it's 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 why it's so hard <laughs> because it's got hundreds of years of supernatural kind of girding behind it and um so i i agree with all the stuff i grew up with we're gonna need some old-fashioned revival and repentance yeah, yeah. no question about that just i think we thought it was the secular world that had to <laughs> repent and right you know and so i think that's going to be that's some of the hard work for white christians i'm not talking about repenting of their personal racism though if there is some that's good to repent of i think it's more of repenting for the fact that this evil system's been all around us and we just just weren't aware yeah. and that's something I pent up every day like man how did I grow up and never even realize this whole thing was unfolding around me yeah. right I'm repent of that every day that I didn't see that and I repent of the fact I still can't see it as fully as Jesus certainly sees it and if I'm connected to him by faith I'm going to see it too right yeah. and so that's the beginning I think of true transformation not just creating diverse spaces I think we need to see like Jesus sees yep oh man that's good that's really really good um, okay. You have time for two more questions, Daniel. Sure. So, um, number one is, um, who, who are you working with these days that you're feeling inspired by? Like maybe, maybe it's a group of people that you've just, you've just visited, but like what's giving you hope, what's inspiring you that, that, um, people actually are maybe waking up to this reality. I have mentioned his name many times, but I love the work that Brian Stevenson's doing, the Equal Justice Initiative, what they're doing. I haven't been there yet, but I think it should be a mandatory field trip for everybody to visit the lynching museum. Yeah. Right? They, they are they are uncovering every place where lynching happened, just an ugly part of America's history, but especially white, white Christians are at the center of this, right? I mean, it's scary how common it was for white churches to break from church and go to a park for a Sunday afternoon picnic and then watch a black person be lynched and have a church picnic while it was happening. I mean, it's just, and I mean, that's, that's like 80 years ago. It's not that far long ago. And so they're finding every single place where there was a lynching and they've made a museum, a memorial because he's, he's coming up from a Christian perspective. Like until we can learn and tell the truth about our history, we can't move forward in a clean way. And so I think, I think, we all should be students of Brian Stevenson and what EJI is doing. I think it's really important for the reconciliation work that has to happen. That's good. Okay. I'm going to put that on the show notes, you guys, EJI and and Brian Stevenson. And, um, and so that can take, um, you all can check that out and then do with that what you will. Um, and so I feel like I've asked this in, or I've tried to ask this in, in, in several ways, but, Let's say someone realizes, not that they never understood any of this, but they realized, oh, crap, I thought I I could see, but now I realize I'm blind and I've done some stupid things. Um, I've I've just, I've I've done dumb things. Um, What is the next step for them? I don't, the great thing about it's, 
to me, this is where it's just like the gospel, right? Yeah, <laughs> where yeah. it's like, once you realize you're a sinner, what's the next step? You right. say, oh, shoot, I'm a sinner. I come back to Jesus, right? Over and over and over again, right? Yeah. And you don't suddenly stop becoming a sinner, not needing to come to Jesus anymore, right? It's right. just like, I, I think true Christianity, like we just realize our sin goes even deeper than we realize, right? Which only makes us more grateful for grace. And I think that is where there's a parallel. I think if you see if you see race as trying to be a good person who doesn't think or do bad things, mm-hmm. I think that's a very superficial way to look at it. Yeah. I think if you instead see it as race is a sickness that blinds me and you know um, handicaps my ability to kind of see people correctly um, then it's just like when Jesus said uh, the, the Pharisees right I've not come for the healthy but I've come from the sick or the sick right and so I, I don't think the goal should ever be that I'm like healthy per se you know and now I'm the one one to get it I think we have to basically take that on as part of our identity is that when it comes to race I don't understand it and that will always be the case and we will win far more friends by starting with that than we will by saying, I st- I can't understand this now. Let me tell you about it. <laughs> yeah. That's not ever going to win this favor <laughs> with anybody. Right? Like, and so it's, in a lot of ways, I think that's so freeing, right? Like yeah. when I meet somebody new, I don't come and say, hey, I wrote a book on this. I really understand it. I go, man, I, I am blind and I'm serious about not being blind. I'm serious about being connected to you and to Jesus. That's what makes people trust me. That I think I'm like arrived at some point of enlightenment on this stuff. And so I think it's it's counterintuitive, but it's actually simple. We just have to keep saying I'm blind and I need I need to see how it's impacted me personally and how I've understood myself. I need to understand it, how it's affected the way I see my neighbor. And then I need to understand the way it affects systems in society. And I don't have the wherewithal to see any of those without help. So I have to continue to be go to the Ananias of the world, or like I think in Acts 10 when Paul Paul doesn't get free until he goes to Cornelius, right? I mean, yeah. there's something about, you know, allowing others to help us see what we didn't see before that's, like, so in line with the gospel. So I don't think, like, blindness of sight is 101 and then you go to, like, something else. I think blindness of sight actually gets more sharp mm-hmm. as you go and you go, mm-hmm. goodness, it's even bigger than I realized. And each new threshold I take only shows me the magnitude of it even more and now i need even more help yeah yeah no that's so helpful like you know i think i'm like maybe most people in this in that um i don't want to appear um less what you know i I don't want to appear like i don't know what i'm doing i don't want to appear like i'm an idiot and yet that's the like if to the degree that we um hold ourselves back based on that then we'll never get anywhere right i mean like i guess fancy way it's, it's still pride, right? I mean, yeah. it, it's a, we don't want to name it that because it's coming from good intentions, right? We want to be on the right side, but it's still pride, right? Yeah. That we can't. And so I, it's just weirdly simple how humility is like <laughs> the ongoing key to this stuff, right? Yeah. Like, and I think when you embrace the blindness of sight paradigm, that is the apex of humility, right? Yeah. Of saying, I can't see without help, period. Yeah. Oh, man. Well, Daniel, thank you so much. Uh, this this went way too fast for me. I have a million more questions, but that'll have to do for now. <laughs> um, I, I really appreciate your perspective, your humility, uh, the work that you've done and, and the work that you continue to do. So thank you so much. And uh, for those of you who are maybe just getting to know Daniel, his book is called White Awake, An Honest Look at What It Means to Be White. You can get it anywhere that you buy books. I'll put a link on it on the show notes. And uh, Daniel, is there any other way that uh, folks might be able to get in touch with you? Uh, no, I mean, my, my handle is the same on all the social media. I'm at, at Daniel Hill, 1336, 1336. So I'll to stay in contact with people in the social media world too. Okay, I'll, I'll include that in the show notes as well. Uh, well, thanks so much, my friend. I really, really, I, this, this was very helpful for me, and I'm sure it'll be helpful for everyone who's listening. So thanks, Daniel. Thanks. It means a lot. I appreciate your good work, too. Blessings on the journey you guys are on in Minnesota. Thanks for listening, friends. If you love this good word, there really are two ways that you can show the love. Uh, one is by sharing this good word. If you have a favorite episode, go ahead and email that to a friend share it on Twitter, share it on Facebook. That really helps spread the word. Also, you can go to iTunes and leave a review, subscribe to this good word. That really helps. And you can leave a rating as well. So uh, have a very beautiful day, my friends, and we'll see you next week.